Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, November 18th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, convicted murderer David Neal Cox was executed late yesterday at Parchman Prison. And a conversation with writer David McGee. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Last night, Mississippi conducted its first execution since 2012. David Neal Cox, who has been on death row for nine years after pleading guilty to killing his wife, died by lethal injection at Parchment Penitentiary. This just days before his 51st birthday. He was pronounced dead at 6.12. Afterward, at 6.12 p.m., I should add, afterwards, Burl Kane, head of Mississippi's prisons, addressed the press and said everything went as planned. There were no glitches with this. This was as smooth as it could be. I've never seen one smoother. Brittany Brown covers criminal justice for the Gulf States newsroom and was at the prison last night. She talked with MPB's Rob Lane about what happened. Brittany, you didn't witness the execution, but you were there at the prison. Tell us what happened. So I spent the entire day at the visitor center at Parchman. That's where they had all the reporters and the press set up to hear from Burl Kane, commissioner of the Mississippi Department of Corrections. Overall, the day went pretty smoothly and we didn't experience any hiccups. Kane talked to the press before and after the execution. And like you said, I didn't witness Cox's execution, but I did talk to Elizabeth Brunig. She's an opinion writer with The Atlantic and she witnessed the execution and told me about it. His last words were, I want my children to know that I love them very much and that I was a good man at one time and don't ever read anything but the King James Bible. And I want to thank the commissioner for being so kind to me. And that's all I got to say. She said he didn't appear to struggle. And at 612, the coroner listened to his heart with an orange stethoscope and pronounced him dead. Department of Corrections Commissioner Burl Kane said he was with him until the end. 
activists gathered outside beforehand and also held a vigil. What were they saying? A small group of anti-death penalty activists gathered outside the visitor center to hold a vigil for Cox and also prayed for his victims. I talked to Sheila O'Flaherty, who said she hasn't missed an execution in Mississippi since the 1980s. She said that she had no idea that she would still be attending protests uh, against the death penalty 30 years later. I know there were concerns about where the lethal injection drugs came from and how effective they may be. Do we have any more information about that? We know that Cox's execution was carried out in a three-step, three-drug process following the state's protocol. The first drug was a sedative, the second a paralytic, and the third stops the heart. These drugs are in short supply because drug companies actually don't want their medicines to be used for executions. Mississippi acquired the drugs over the summer, but Commissioner Kane would not say how, and he says that he's actually not required to say by law. But Kane said this was the smoothest execution he's seen, and he's witnessed seven others before this one. The activists outside were actually concerned because of a recent execution in Oklahoma that was botched. But witnesses said Cox didn't appear to suffer. It actually looked like he just went to sleep. And David Neal Cox actually requested to be executed? Yes. So as a reminder of of what happened. Cox in 2010 held his wife and his stepdaughter hostage overnight. During that hostage situation, Cox shot his wife multiple times and sexually assaulted his stepdaughter multiple times while her mother watched. He pleaded guilty in 2012 to killing his wife and sexually assaulting his stepdaughter and uh, was on death row, has been on death row since then. He's been trying to fire his lawyers and expedite his execution for the past three years since 2018. I talked to some folks in the crowd outside of the prison who said they've been writing letters and he has expressed remorse and has grown deeper in his faith and viewed the execution as a sort of home going. He wanted his execution to provide relief to his victims. This was the first execution in Mississippi since 2012. Should we expect more here in the state now that this one has gone through? This is a unique situation because Cox fired his attorneys and waived his appeals. So it doesn't necessarily mean that executions will quote unquote restart in the state after nine years because it's a case by case basis. Also, the state is currently facing a lawsuit arguing that the lethal injection protocol is inhumane. And that's been going on since 2015. But I did talk to Greg Spore, and he's an attorney with the Office of State Public Defender, and he was at the vigil. He believes that the state will see more executions. This will trigger a trend. I mean, this has got guys in the row absolutely scared to death, scared to death. Right now, 36 people, including one woman, remain on death row in Mississippi. And Richard Jordan, who is 73 years old, is the oldest person on death row. And he's also been on death row the longest since 1977 for 43 years. Brittany Brown covers criminal justice for the Gulf States Newsroom, which is a collaboration between public media stations in Mississippi, Alabama and Louisiana. Brittany, thank you. Thank you, Rob. Coming up, writer David McGee tells us about his new book on addiction and loss. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Klein for Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult. And yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. 
Most healthcare systems across the country are failing to equitably serve people of color. But as a new report shows, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Alabama are seeing even bigger gaps between racial groups. Shalina Chadlani with the Gulf States Newsroom has more. In regions like the Gulf South, black residents in particular are more likely than in most other states to face barriers to healthcare access. That's according to an analysis by the Commonwealth Fund, which, by the way, is a financial supporter of the Gulf States Newsroom. Researchers looked at indicators like access, quality, and health outcomes for different racial and ethnic groups. Lori Zephyrin is a study co-author. People of color less likely to receive preventative health services, irrespective of income, neighborhood, uh, comorbid illness or insurance type, and often more likely to receive lower quality care. The report finds black residents are more likely to die early from some treatable conditions like cancer. Study authors say state leaders can help reduce inequities by promoting affordable health insurance options and investing in social services. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Shalina Chatlani. The ACT Center for Tobacco Treatment, Education and Research is an arm of the University of Mississippi Medical Center aimed solely at addressing nicotine addiction in the state. Dr. Karen Cruz is the center's director. She tells MPB's Kobe Vance that today her organization is participating in a national campaign called the Great American Smokeout. It is a day that we challenge smokers to give up cigarettes for 24 hours. You know, it helps. Uh, right now in the United States of America, there are more people who have quit smoking than currently smoke. So we want individuals who use tobacco products to know that they can quit. And there are resources, particularly in Mississippi, to help them stop using. What are some of the health risks that people face whenever they continue smoking? Well, it's well documented that 80 to 90 percent of lung cancers are caused by smoking and about 20 percent of uh, cardiovascular disease, of the cardiovascular diseases like heart attack, stroke, and the like are related to tobacco use. So Mississippi in particular, we are concerned because we have one of the highest incidence uh, rates of lung cancer and one of the poorest survival rates. So this is a good time for individuals who use tobacco to think about that and maybe take tomorrow on as a challenge and see if they can go uh, for 24 hours without using. And once they get that confidence, and they can go ahead and make a, a, a real quit attempt. How difficult is it for people to typically quit smoking if they can come to y'all to uh, seek assistance? Everyone's different. There are those individuals who can quit cold turkey. About 3 to 5% of, of folks who say they want to quit can just put them down and not pick them up again. However, most people will need some type of assistance, whether it be their healthcare provider writing a prescription for one of the FDA-approved medications for quitting tobacco. Some individuals benefit from counseling, uh, an organized group or individual treatment program that will give them skills to cope with quitting, you know, decision-making, managing stress, what to do when you have a slip, how to turn, you know, when you, if you do smoke a cigarette, how to turn just a little slip into and not let it become a, an entire relapse. What, what would be your advice to somebody if they are looking at the possibility of quitting smoking? How, how can they look to f- find where their first step is? In Mississippi, we have great resources for individuals to stop quitting. We have a quit line, which is 1-800-QUIT-NOW, which is a national quit line number, but they will be routed to a program that's 
directed at Mississippians. We have the ACT Center, which is a tobacco treatment center that has been helping Mississippians quit smoking for the past 20 years at the University Medical Center. And one might say, well, I don't live in Jackson where the university is, so I don't, how do I access that? Well, we also have the UMCTU face-to-face counseling through the telephone, so they can do it by just talking on the phone or through FaceTime. They can ask their healthcare provider to give them guidance, and most of the healthcare providers in Mississippi are aware of the quit line and, and the ACT Center, and then there are lots of tobacco assistance programs within community health centers and hospitals across the state as well. When somebody's quitting, what are some of the challenges they might face? I think the biggest challenge that individuals who are trying to quit uh, face is confidence in quitting. Tobacco use is sort of a three-pronged addiction. There's the habit, the routine of smoking. There's the psychological aspect uh, of smoking. And then there's the physical addiction to nicotine, which is probably the most difficult thing to overcome. And that is why we recommend that someone who's trying to quit either ask their health care provider for help. They can go and speak with a pharmacist in the drugstore about the nicotine replacement products that you can get over the counter. Um, if they've tried those before and those don't work, then they can talk to their health care provider, their physician or dentist about getting a prescription for one of the um, non-nicotine products that are available, uh, Zyban or Chantix, or they can contact the Mississippi State Quit Line, which provides free medications and counseling for any Mississippian who would like to quit, or they can access care, like I said, at the ACT Center, which is 601-815-1180 in Jackson, and they can also Google and see our website and get in touch with somebody at the ACT Center through our website, and we provide free medications and counseling for anybody who would like to quit. So there's lots of resources. Uh, Medicaid covers medications for pregnant women who are trying to quit smoking. And there are just lots of different resources across the state for any Mississippian who would like to quit. According to NPR, over the past year, cigarette sales have actually risen. And spending for ads for uh, smoke, smoke tobacco has risen as well. What does that say to you, and what are your concerns about you know the the rise in people uh, using cigarettes? As somebody who's been working in this area for the past almost thirty years, what I see is sort of the cycle. Just you know, in in the eighties, seventies, eighties, and early nineties, we had a very high prevalence rate of smoking among youth, particularly in the state of Mississippi and adults, really among our youth. And we really targeted our, uh, we had a statewide uh, prevention program. All of the agencies came together to work together and and target our youth. And we've seen a tremendous reduction from 27% in the late 80s, early 90s uh, use among high school students down to under 10%. So we know that it takes a concerted effort across all disciplines, so to speak, to to make that happen. But what we do know as well is that the tobacco industry is always ready and always bringing, uh, developing new products and new strategies for marketing. And now that we have online marketing, you know, it's, it's a big concern for those of us in this field. 
but all we can do is keep doing what we're doing, which is educating the public, offering assistance, and letting individuals know that they're not alone, that there are people out there who want to help them quit, and that they can do it. Millions of Americans have done it. Dr. Karen Cruz is director of the ACT or ACT Center for Tobacco Treatment, Education, and Research at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Still ahead, a conversation with writer David McGee. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Oxford author David McGee has found success writing big stories about big companies like Toyota, Nissan, and John Deere. His latest work is far more personal and even more ambitious. It's a book called Dear William that chronicles the life and legacy of McGee's son, who died of an accidental drug overdose. My son was the sweetest little boy. I remember him in church singing, this little light of mine, as loud as he could, and then, you know, he was an all-state athlete in track and field and came to Ole Miss and was in the Honors College and the Croft Institute and ran on the track team and made it to the SEC Outdoor Track and Field Championships and the 400 hurdles. But what we found out is that sweet boy self-medicated with alcohol and other drugs, and he got in over his head. When he began to have problems, did he come to you or did you discover it? Uh, we, we discovered it, but, you know, we were so unprepared. We didn't understand what we were dealing with, and we were probably too late in responding. But what we found out later, and, uh, you know, we had another son dealing with addiction, and I had my own experience with, at the same time, with prescription Adderall, which was a nightmare. And uh, my daughter was dealing with an eating disorder at the time. We didn't really understand any of this. And so our whole family was in a meltdown and our son, William, unfortunately got lost in the shuffle. So we probably were too late in recognizing and getting him into treatment. And he was making progress, but uh, it would have been better to get him in soon. Did William go into rehab? Yes. So we learned late in William's senior year he had begun using painkillers, Oxycontin and other things, and abusing prescription painkillers, and he was very hooked and mixed with alcohol and marijuana and everything else, and we were losing the boy we knew. He graduated from Ole Miss and pretty much went straight into rehab, and he was doing really well, but doing well is also the addict's uh, Achilles heel because they think they're strong again, and they're like, oh, well, maybe I have this under control but they don't. And he thought he would go out for a beer with a friend and he could just do that. But then that led to one thing and that led to another. And then I found him dead. How long afterwards did he die? Eight months. After he graduated? Yeah, eight months, I think. Did the police call you? Is that how you found out? No. You know, when you have a loved one suffering from addiction, you're always checking in with them. You're always afraid. And I was text messaging him and he wasn't responding. So I drove up to go see about him and his car is there and he's not coming to the door. And I knew. From a small excerpt I read, you were begging the police to let you in so you could see him. 
and yeah, they advised and against the police that. officers like you just don't want to remember him that way you you need and and you know uh yeah, I wish I could do that moment over, but the officer was probably also right. You wish you could do so much over. But, I mean, look, we're as happy as we can be. Uh, we have another son uh, who had nearly died uh, on a college campus at a fraternity house the year before, and all that's revealed in my memoir, Dear William. He's now nine years sober, and I had my own life turn around when I got off the prescription Adderall and literally threw the doctor's prescription away and got my own life back on track. And my daughter is successful in eating disorder recovery. And, you know, our family minus one, I mean, we came through a war and we're so happy and have really learned to thrive and just be really honest about what happened. But we, we did lose one and we'll always miss him. And as you said, this is your memoir, even though it's called Dear William, this is your yeah, memoir. Th- th- this, is, this is my memoir of like, how did we get here? This is about the making and near breaking of an American family. And I think there's something in here every person can relate to because it's, it's a family, uh, mental health and addiction and anxiety and depression. So much of that is embedded in family, rightfully or not. And that's what this book is about. And it's about finding purpose and who we are and how we make sense of our challenges and what we can do about it. And it's called Dear William because, you know, my son, William, I was with him the week before he died, and this is the book he told me to write. You founded the William McGee Center for Wellness Education at Ole Miss as a result of William's life and death. It's for students at Ole Miss? Yes. It's there for support and education of Ole Miss students with alcohol and other drugs and related mental health issues. And I have seen lives that we've changed. The College Board of Mississippi has approved the William McGee Institute for Student Well-Being, which we're now building on campus, and it's the university's next standalone national institute, which the William McGee Center is a component of that. The center serves Ole Miss students. The institute, with research and engagement, uh, will allow us to reach into communities across Mississippi and find solutions even for students. So. We're able to serve our son's legacy, but but there's even more than that. I, we just want to help other families and students to know that there is something much better, and they can get there. David McGee is the author of Dear William, a father's memoir of addiction, recovery, love, and loss. David, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. No, oh, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from...